1: This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for the stories making news and moving markets in the APAC region. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcast and always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app. We bring in our guest, Katrina L., Senior Economist at Moody's Analytics, who joins us uh, from Sydney. Katrina, good of you to make time for us. So we've got two stories to try to unpack here. One, inflation, the other, deflation. And I'm gonna begin with the inflation story and whether you feel confident now that we are not gonna see a reemergence of uh, higher prices or upward pressure on prices, that you feel relatively confident that global central banks in countries like Australia, US, um, South Korea even, have done a reasonable job at getting inflation under control. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yes, I think that is fair to say. I mean, what we've seen is that inflation... Um, across most of the developed world is really now on that nice entrenched downtrend. So what we're, we're talking about now, you know, last year was all about how many more rate hikes are we going to see? Whereas 2024 is all about when will this, um, well anticipated, um, you know, rate cutting cycle begin. I think that's that's really going to be the the story of this year. And I think um, you know we're all waiting with um, bated breath of when those cuts are going to occur, so that we can get um, you know that constrained domestic demand that's happening across the world start to improve.
3: So, what's the timeline then for Fed easing?
2: So, we're expecting at this stage that we will start to see um, rate cuts in the US start from May. So. Um, you know, it could be pushed out slightly because what we're seeing is that because inflation and because the jobs market is cooling quite nicely, the Fed doesn't actually need to rush when it comes to cutting rates because the economy is, is not falling in a heap. It's holding quite resilient. So, I think the longer they wait, the more comfortable they'll be with making sure that inflation is really where it needs to be. They don't need to kind of um, you know, move more quickly to cut rates to support the economy because it is holding resilience. So um, May at this stage is where we're expecting the first rate cut to occur.
1: So compare and contrast what we're seeing or what you expect to happen in the U.S. with what you're seeing out, uh, out your back door there in Sydney.
2: Yeah. So in, in Sydney, it's actually a similar story. So, um, we are seeing that inflation is on that downtrend in Australia. I mean, it's not quite as, as cool as where we're seeing it in the US, but it is getting there. Um, it's holding about 4%. So it's not quite back to the RBA's magical two to 3% inflation target yet. And so for that reason, because it's not, as on that clear downtrend just yet and where it needs to be, we are expecting in Australia that we won't see a rate cut occur until September. So unfortunately for households over here, they do still have some time with that extremely elevated um,
3: rate environment. Although, of course, uh, we didn't suffer as, as high higher rates here in Australia as uh, the rest of the world did. The RBA was a, a bit more gentle with us. But we, we've got some jobs numbers coming out here for January in Australia. The rates seem ticking up. Uh, where do you see that levelling out?
2: Yeah, so we're expecting that the unemployment rate in Australia will actually end the year at about 4.2%, so it's not that much higher from where it is at the moment in that that sub 4% range. And a a consequence of that is that um, while household spending has certainly pulled back, it hasn't pulled back as much as we could have expected if we had seen more deterioration in the labour market. Because, you know, that labour market is really such an important firewall between households just cooling spending and households going down a darker path. Because it's we all know it's one thing to be spending more on, um, you know, goods and services in an elevated inflation environment, more on repaying your mortgage. But it's quite another if you lose your job. And because we're not seeing that mass job shedding in Australia and also in many places over like the U.S., we have seen a slowing in household consumption, but not a, a really decent pullback, which is why these global recession odds have also been pared back quite substantially as well.
1: Speaking of dark paths, uh, I guess you could say that about uh, the, the deflation story in China. I mean, we've been kind of in deflation on the wholesale level for more than a year, and now it's intractable, it seems, on on the retail level. Uh, is this a significant headwind, do you think? for the Chinese economy, or is this something that central bank policy, aggressive central bank policy can reverse?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think what we've seen from from Chinese policymakers is is that they're not going to deliver that really aggressive stimulus on the monetary front or the fiscal front. And so we do have a, a significant demand problem in China. And so, you know. It's it's problematic because on the one hand, in the developed world, we're talking about how it's it's so wonderful that inflation has cooled, but in China, we're almost talking about the reverse problem of uh, you know prices have falling too much. And I think what we're what we're seeing in China is the the problem of deflation. Um, if it gets too entrenched, we'll see policymakers have an even bigger problem on their hands because uh, you know we're starting to see the beginnings of if households start to believe that you know, prices will keep falling on a sustained basis. They'll also delay purchases and, you know, that will impact businesses. And at the same time, we'll also see real rates rise. And that's problematic because the PBOC is actually actively trying to to ease that that credit environment in China. So, um, you know, lots of problems there that I think will need to get addressed over the course of this year if we are actually going to see domestic demand in China start to stabilize.
3: Of course, it is Lunar New Year this week and China markets are on a holiday and and so are people. So they're traveling, they're spending more. Uh, When the data from this Lunar New Year gets unpacked, what do you expect to learn about the state of the Chinese economy?
2: So I think that the forward indicators around um, uh, Lunar New Year travel and projected spending have been quite positive because we're not having the same sort of restrictions domestically on travel and also uh, international travel as well so that's that's a positive but it's, it's really a question of will that improved exuberance from this year compared to last year when it comes to households if that's actually going to be sustained beyond the lunar new year break and unfortunately we're just not thinking that it will because we're seeing that households are, are still incredibly cautious but also you know private businesses as well are cautious and then that's of course holding back the jobs market. So again, we're in this this problematic cycle of of weak demand that's continuing to ensure that the Chinese economy continues to underperform. And so that's why, you know, we're really waiting on policymakers to deliver more meaningful stimulus. and we've seen it in, in some degree. We are seeing increased support, uh, to the property market, uh, particularly to developers, but it is still quite constrained to the point where it's not going to reinvigorate the Chinese economy. Unfortunately, it's just going to, um, hopefully try and arrest this, this ongoing decline.
1: It's certainly reminiscent of what Japan went through more than 30 years ago. And I'm sure that policymakers in China have have studied the history books. And when you look at the debt to GDP numbers, I think China right now, it's around 287 percent. I mean, it's flirting with 300 percent. And that was probably one of the, the apt comparisons to make when you look at what China is now going through versus what Japan went through three decades ago. Is there a real risk that, like Japan, China gets stuck in in a deflationary trap that could last decades?
2: I mean, at this stage, when when, you know, we don't see that as a real risk, we see that more as a tail risk, but it's certainly a concern the longer that China continues to underperform and also... It's, it remains a concern the um, until China can get some of these these fundamental, Structural imbalances in their economy and, until they can actually um, improve those. And I'm thinking here in particular about the property market. If they, if they can't kind of bring that back to a sustainable level and, and come up with new growth drivers as well, then I think we do have a significant problem that's kind of Japan era esque. Because, you know, if we're looking at the property market, for instance, it used to be um, such a critical dro- growth driver accounting for around 25% of GDP. But now, of course, it's in this deep correction territory. Forward indicators point to ongoing correction, we're seeing private businesses, um, investment from private businesses as well is is particularly weak. And so we're kind of looking around for, okay, what's going to take the place of the property market as such a critical growth driver? And nothing is really standing out at this point. And so I think we need to see that um, whether it's households coming to the party or whether it's um, you know high-tech industries, we need to see something else to, to take the place to um, kind of arrest this bearish sentiment in China that's really seems to have taken a life of its own in the
3: past couple of months. Very quickly, Katrina, 30 seconds. We've got Japan GDP this week. You mentioned Japan. Um, Is that economy ready for the end of negative rates or is this pretty much symbolic?
2: Great question. I, I don't think they have a choice. I think that negative rates are, are coming, whether they like it or not. And we are looking at a, at least a 0.1% contraction from fourth quarter GDP data released this week.
1: Katrina, thanks for making time to chat with us. Always a pleasure. Katrina L., Senior Economist at Moody's Analytics, joining us from Sydney here on a Daybreak Asia.
0: Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
3: We're joined now by Garfield Reynolds-Bloomberg Chief Correspondent for Rates uh, here to talk about well, what else markets. And uh, Garfield, want to start in our neck of the woods. We've got Australian bonds declining right now. Uh, what's this a function of exactly? I mean, we don't have many other markets open at the moment. Is
4: this uh, just where the money's flowing at the moment? Yeah, Paul, it's a bit of a follow-on from what went on on Friday when uh, your bonds declined in the US. Uh, that was even after some CPI revisions came in you know, without causing any concerns that inflation might not be slowing down. You even have people saying after those came out that this cements the case for Fed rate cuts. But bonds right now are extremely nervous worldwide as policymakers, including the Fed and you know, the RBA as well last week, push back hard against the idea that they're about to cut rates. So with US CPI coming up on Tuesday in the US and uh, more Fed speakers as well, that's uh, enough reason for investors to be nervous about bonds. You could probably even add in, despite the fact that oil is down slightly today, oil has climbed quite a bit in recent days. And that's particularly nasty for bonds because that has such a strong link to inflation expectations.
1: Yeah, one of the other things I think that is very much a front of mind for the market here is the idea of stress in the financial system as it relates to... Uh, well, consumer—I mean, uh, commercial real estate—but I'm looking at a story on the Bloomberg talking about the shadow banking industry in the U.S. loaning more than a trillion dollars through the end of January. Now, a year ago, that figure was less than 900 billion. So there continues to be an increase in the extension of credit credit beyond kind of the conventional banking system. So put that kind of on on one side, and then introduce or reintroduce the idea that you know, since the New York Community Bank Story kind of captured investors' imaginations. I mean, it goes to the issue of a lot of commercial real estate debt that needs to be rolled over. And I think that for the Fed, they would like to be able to get out in front if there is the potential for easing, that it needs to happen sooner rather than later.
4: Well, I mean, the difficulty there, too, is, is something that we're all used to the idea that the yield curve is inverted, supposedly warning of a recession. It's been inverted for almost the longest on record uh, you know, since July 2022. And the thing about that is that banks are in the business normally uh, of you know, borrowing short to lend long. So if short-term yields are above long-term yields in the regular markets, that makes that a much harder uh, your business to be in. You have to find some way around you know, that how, how do you lend for five years if it's going to cost you more than you can you know, get to borrow for two years? So in that sort of a situation, you get people turning to the shadow banking sector. You're trying to find people who are more willing you know, to, to, to lend. As policy starts
3: to normalize, um, do you anticipate that that yield curve inversion is
4: uh, getting near the end? Well, you would you would think it would be, although again, this it's it's already the longest on record from the trough, assuming the trough was the 109 basis point inversion back in March, until we get back to zero. And it's proved very, very sticky. Uh, the concern for the bond market is that you might not get the sort of rapid, you know, steepening which has usually accompanied, uh, you know, an, an end to the yield curve. Uh, and and the big question, again, is do we get uh, it happening with the bond market selling off? Because there are a lot of risks out there that people are looking past that could lead to yield jumping in the something like the way they did last year. We still have too much debt out there. We still have the concern that Japanese investors might head back to Japan once the BOJ ends negative rates there, we still have the potential for concerns about oil if, if oil you know, continues to move higher. So the bond market and other markets are very much positioned for the idea that the yield curve will disinvert and that it will do so in the standard sort of ways. But it's not at all clear that that we will get that standard this inversion because there are a lot of things about the way things are going at the moment that are very far from being standard
1: so let's change locale and talk about risk the deflationary story in china do you think that that's a a big risk for markets right now outside of china
4: i i, I think very much so uh you yeah. It, it's not at all clear that they can turn that around some of it is to do with you talked about commercial real estate all real estate in china is is you know in, in a problematic state and part of that too is the demographics have turned against china so they don't have that population growth you know that that can help them to get out of it and the biggest concern in a lot of ways for foreign economies is that the latest concentration within China has been on turning the market around, doing things like discouraging short selling, encouraging your sovereign uh, or your state-backed companies to buy shares, encouraging others to bring money back from offshore to buy shares without there being you know anybody going, yeah, you should bring your money back because we know how to solve these problems. So when you have... China, the world's second-largest economy and the overwhelming driver for global growth after the last 20 years, in that sort of a situation, that that has to raise a lot of red flags. All right, Garfield Reynolds, Bloomberg Chief Correspondent for Rates. Thanks so much
3: for joining us here in the Sydney studio.
1: Well, last Friday, Israel's credit rating was downgraded for the first time ever. This is going to complicate the process of the country's debt sales. Israel will have to sell a near record amount of bonds this year to fund its war against Hamas. Let's take a closer look now. We are joined by Bloomberg's Michael Heath, who covers the economy and the government. He's one of our editors joining us from our newsroom in Sydney. Michael, thanks for joining us. First, the basis of the downgrade. This is Moody's investment service right what did they cite as the rationale for lowering uh, the credit rating?
5: G'day, Doug. yeah uh, I mean the, the, the main thing I guess is the um, is the, the fiscal impact of the war though they do talk about the the material rise in, in political risk um, and the potential for it to weaken the executive and legislative institutions which is um, it's a little bit unusual I guess in a way I mean the, the, the fiscal side you can understand obviously we've had 300,000 reservists called up. Um, those guys are at war they 're not in their in their jobs they 're not um, earning paying taxes that sort of thing, plus the military expenditures so that side of it sort of makes sense the The political side is sort of harder to harder to gauge i mean whether whether it 's it 's directly uh, talking about. The um, the the unpopularity of the of the current um, government uh, polls are showing that it would lose an election now, or the judicial review that that was causing a lot of um, a lot of upheaval in Israel prior to the war breaking out. Uh, it, it's just not clear. But obviously, the the longer the war goes on, um, it's a fairly uh, the government is fairly right-wing there, and includes includes some fringe parties. So the longer it goes on, perhaps the, the, they just worry about um, about how how things are going to operate um, legislatively and politically there. But the fiscal side, um, I think, is fairly clear now. With Israel, uh, one one of its advantages is it does tend to fund its budget and its debt um, from heavily from domestic sources. So it's not going to do a lot lot to it um, in terms of the rates it's paying and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, the longer this war goes on and there's talk of it lasting through this year, the harder it's going to get for the economy there.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. And with uh, kind of weaker economic activity, I would mean, imagine that the, the tax revenues will begin to cl- declining, and that's only going to put further stress on the system, right?
5: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you hit from two fronts, aren't you? You've got increased military expenditure, um, you know. Plus, you've got uh, decreased uh, revenue, obviously. From um, and businesses struggle, obviously, in a, in a war zone as well. Outside of not having the, those um, employees who are paying tax and, and that sort of thing, so it's sort of a it's a bit of a pincer movement. On the budget there and and it is going to get hard but I mean, Israel's economy is pretty impressive and it's pretty resilient. So you'd assume that it will bounce back. I mean, perhaps Prime Minister Netanyahu might have been, you know, studying a bit too, being a bit too slick and saying it's just the war, and there's potentially a bit more going on with Israel politically there. But nonetheless, he does have a good point that the war is the key issue here.
1: So, as we look to the future and these bond sales, will there be greater pressure, do you think, applied on the part of the government to buy uh, or on rather uh, Israeli pension? Funds and institutional investors.
5: Well, my understanding is that they're pretty good about buying that as well. I mean, they've got a lot of money, um, and and the government's obviously, you know, done. Uh, it has a very, very good fiscal record and debt record, and that sort of thing. Um, so, but but yes, I think they would definitely be very keen for, for domestic uh, domestic funds to be buying this debt because obviously, once you go offshore, you're, you're paying higher rates. It, it puts even more strain on the budget, um, and you know, the downgrade was sort of priced in by markets to some extent, it hasn't had a huge, there hasn't been been much of a reaction at this stage. But the longer this goes on, uh, you know, as you have to go on um, buying overseas, uh, sorry, buying debt overseas, and, and as I guess the world starts to get more critical of Israel with this war as well, perhaps it, co- it causes a bit more difficulty there. So they'd definitely be keen on the, on the domestic investors buying it, Yep.
1: So what has the central bank been doing to support economic growth at a time of, of war? And, and I'm wondering about the role the currency plays in all of this as well.
5: Well, yeah, it's it's really quite interesting. I mean, Israel's currency actually has has bounced back. I mean, that the, it, it took a hit initially with, with with the attack and and with the war, and and you know, as markets globally sort of, um, everyone was quite shocked, obviously, at what happened uh, in that early October period. It's actually since bounced back, and the, and the, Israel actually cut rates recently. So it, the, the the central bank is a is a, a pretty pretty well regarded institution, and um, and its response was, was fairly measured as well to to Moody. So um, you know, I think I think that they're they're one of the um one, one of the strong pillars of the of the institutional system there.
1: So in terms of insuring Israeli uh, sovereign credit, have you seen a move in in the credits uh, default swaps market? I mean, has insurance uh, on these bonds become a little more expensive?
5: Uh, look, I haven't looked lately, but I think they had edged up a tad. Um, there haven't been, as I mentioned, there hasn't been a huge, um, a huge response because there had been a pricing in for the downgrade. Um, so so the, the impact should be fairly limited either way. But you'd imagine that um, you know, it, it, the longer this goes on for, the more pressure that will come on those fronts.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the fact that the expectations are we could be looking at another year of this. It's interesting that, you know, from the American side, and I don't think the United States is alone in this, in calling for a ceasefire, but that that doesn't seem to be something that would um, would likely happen at this point, does it?
5: no no it's a really interesting one isn't it i mean i think sometimes with president biden his his first comments are often his right ones and and when he was talking about israel's um some of its military actions recently being over the top i think he was saying what he really thought there um and obviously there's this discussion about israel moving into Rafah, which is sort of right down the end of of the gaza strip near the egyptian border Uh, and that's where most of the refugees during the fighting have all gathered so you've got more than a million people there Israel's is talking about going in there to, to get rid of the, the remaining, I mean, or, or the Hamas the militants who are hiding among those refugees. Now, obviously, that's probably almost certainly the case that, that, that that's what they're doing. The problem is that, uh, you know, the U.S., the U.K., um, Arab countries, they want Israel to provide a, a safe area for these civilians. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, uh, yes, we're providing that north of, of Rafa. But the problem is that over this three months or, or nearly four months of this conflict's gone on, there's a bit of a credibility gap between what Israel says is available to these civilians and what in reality is available to them. Um, and I think that's really what's worrying the US and UK. I mean, the UK came out with a statement, and obviously President Biden has as well. They really want Israel to, to avoid uh, avoid." really heavy bloodshed here and it's very difficult to see how that will happen with so many civilian people in such a small area so it's really really quite concerning that that situation and I think Israel is going to have to play this very very carefully because we're sort of almost at a pivot point internationally where where people are starting to get you know 27,000 deaths Uh, even if it's Hamas reporting that there's a lot of people who've died in that area and the tolerance for it I think is starting to wane. No doubt about that.
1: Michael, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for making time to chat with us. Michael Heath, Bloomberg Economy and Governor Editor, coming to us from Sydney. This has been the Bloomberg Daybreak Asia podcast, bringing you the stories making news and moving markets in the Asia-Pacific. Visit the Bloomberg podcast channel on YouTube to get more episodes of this and other shows from Bloomberg. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify or anywhere else you listen. And always on Bloomberg Radio, the Bloomberg Terminal and the Bloomberg Business app.